Good morning and Happy New Year. Today's scripture reading will be found in Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 6, and I'll be reading to verse 12. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, How shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into, yours, into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be, in a, be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let me be the third or fourth to wish you a happy new year. I'm glad to see you here, not just here, but bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. That might be a bit of a stretch, but you're here, and uh, together, it's already, it's been a, a great pleasure and privilege to worship with you and um, to look to our God in prayer, and now we are excited to look to the Lord in his word. So I'll ask you to take your Bibles and turn them back open to Malachi chapter 3. I do, I really do wish you a happy new year and hope that you've enjoyed these holidays and have taken advantage of all of the opportunities that the Lord has given you to rejoice, uh, to rest, to reflect on his goodness, especially his goodness in Christ. And uh, I just want to say a personal note on behalf of uh, my family. Thank you very much for all of your expressions of kindness and cheer towards us this Christmas. You're very, very thoughtful and extremely generous. And um, I was, I'm also very grateful for a couple of days off this week uh, where I could go and visit with my parents and my siblings in Canada. Uh, we had a wonderful time together. It's been a whole... I don't know, a year and a half maybe since we've all been together as a family, and so it was a very special time. And my folks uh, put me under oath to uh, greet you on their behalf and to, uh, to let you know how much they uh, love you and miss you and hope to see you again in 2023. Sounds a little weird to say. We'll have to get used to that, but... Uh, it was a it was a bit touch and go actually whether we were going to make it to see my family in Canada on Monday, uh, as you know I'm sure the roads in and around Buffalo were still a little sketchy uh, from that great big storm and many of the counties many of the towns still had travel bans in place and they hadn't been lifted by the time we were scheduled to be driving through there so. Um, my dad called on Sunday night to tell us that he had heard that all of the borders, all the bridges to Canada were closed. 
and we did a quite a bit of searching online to see if it was actually true and it was actually quite difficult to get any clear answers online um, so we just decided to uh, trust the Lord and we did our best to drive around the city kind of north and then west and uh, you know to avoid those banned areas um, to go to the one border that seemed like maybe it was open but honestly I half expected to be turned away at the border if not sooner but in one of the suburbs and as it happened everything worked out uh, great this is a little bit anticlimactic of a story we were able to make it to my sister's house on Monday afternoon without incident and we had a great time now I tell you that partially because uh, I want I want it to function as a sort of illustration for what we're going to talk about today um, if just permit me to still you know pretend that it didn't happen that way and that imagine that we left our home in Wayland and we traveled qu quite a distance in a particular direction to Buffalo only to have to turn on our heels and come back in that in that opposite direction all the way back home that might be a helpful picture to have in your mind as we turn once again to Malachi and in particular, as we turn to a portion of scripture that deals with the topic of repentance. Repentance. And I'm aware that at first glance, this might not appear to you to be a passage on repentance. Instead, you might recognize this section of scripture um, as a, a text about tithing. And perhaps in previous churches, you've heard messages from this portion of God's word. Maybe you've heard it on a stewardship Sunday, say, or, or maybe even on a New, Year, New, New Year's uh, Sunday or the Sunday that's closest to New Year's. Sometimes uh, preachers like to pull this text out um, as a sort of challenge to the people on a new year to resolve to make regular contributions and to uh, make tithing one of your top priorities for the new year now that might very well be an appropriate resolution for you to have and you might even be convicted about your giving on the basis of this text but I want you to know from the outset that this passage is primarily about repentance and that's going to be our focus and if I was to encourage you to make any New Year's resolutions on the basis of this passage, it would be something about regular repentance. The need that we all have to, to turn on our heels from moving in a particular direction away from the Lord and away from his will and to come back home, so to speak, to come back to the Lord. The great reformer, Martin Luther, wrote as the first of his 95 theses, he said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Repentance, this turning from sin and turning to the Lord, is what you do to get into the Christian life. And perhaps there are some of you here today that have not done that. You have not come to the end of yourself. You have not seen the, the danger and the destruction of your own sin. And that is certainly what we would urge you to do today. 
is to repent of your sin and trust Christ. But this is also just part and parcel of living the Christian life. Daily repentance, the daily forsaking of sin and flinging yourself on Christ and on his mercy and on his finished work. Now in coming to this passage, especially in coming to verse 7, we're coming to the climax of this book of Malachi. We come now to the theme of this whole prophecy, and it could be summarized as a call. It's a, it's a gracious invitation where the Lord says, return to me and I will return to you. That's what the Lord of hosts says. That's what he desires. That's his plea. And that, that word return in the Hebrew is the same idea as repent. It's the same word. It's just kind of translated differently in some places. And uh, again, maybe have that image in your head because the, the concept with this word is a 180 degree change of direction. It's, it's like driving to Buffalo, slamming on the brakes, and then sliding because of the snow, spinning around to the opposite direction, and then heading straight back home to Wayland. That's repentance. And we'll take a closer look at our passage this morning by seeing three things related to repentance. If you're taking notes, this will be kind of headers for you to jot some additional thoughts down under. I want to show you first the basis for repentance. Secondly, the beckoning to repentance. And then third, we'll uh, look at some blessings for repentance. The basis, the beckoning, the blessings, all to do with repentance. First then, the basis for repentance. And here we're asking a couple of questions. One, why do we need to repent in the first place? And two, what, what's going to motivate our repentance? We're going to handle these two questions in reverse order. I'm wanting to make sure that you're paying attention this morning and not nodding off. So just notice right out of the gate, even before the Lord calls us to repentance, do you see that he's seeking to coax it from us? by a reminder of his character. Verse 6 begins with a four, and uh, you'll, you'll know that, that that's a little word that kind of connects it, all of this material, with the material that we looked at last time. So four is a backwards-looking kind of connection. It's a ground for all that has been said before. But then also notice that this verse contains a therefore, which kind of works in a different direction. It, it moves the argument forward. It, it brings you to certain uh, conclusions and implications. So commentators are kind of confused by all of this. They're not sure if this verse, verse number six, should be attached to the section that was previous or if it belongs where it's in most of our Bibles, which is in this new section. And to me, the answer is pretty simple. I don't know if this is a cop-out or not, but it belongs to both. It's sort of a hinge verse that is the key to both, and it keeps us moving in a, in a good direction. 
So just by way of review and reminder, you know that the previous section closed with a strong word of judgment. I realize this was uh, a couple of weeks ago now, so um, that's asking you to dig back in the archives, but you, you'll recall that, that this was a very strong word of judgment from the mouth of the Lord. The Lord promised to draw near to his people in judgment. That wasn't what they were expecting. They were hoping that he would draw near to their enemies in judgment and that all would be well for them. But because of their sin, because of their fa failure to fear him and walk with him, uh, the Lord had to do some serious work with them. But maybe you also recalled that even, even in this word of strong judgment, e even that word is a gracious word. Do you remember that it this judgment is described primarily in terms of a refining process, not absolute destruction? You remember the picture of a, of a skilled silversmith who's sitting over top of a pot of, of uh, silver and he's heating it up and he's drawing off the dross and all of the impurities and he's working on a a pure result. That's what he's aiming for. So this is a judgment of refinement, not destruction. And that is so gracious. That's so gracious of the Lord. What the Lord wants destroyed is, is our sin, not us. And so we come to verse 6, and this idea is underscored by a word about the character and the nature of God. And one attribute in particular is called out for our consolation, for our motivation. And this is what theologians refer to as the doctrine of immutability. The immutability of God. The truth that God is unchanging and unchangeable. Now in some ways this is theology 101, even though it's a big fancy word. It's a very basic concept. You understand that God does not change, that he can't change. It's impossible in terms of his essence, his will, his covenants, his promises. God is a perfect being, a perfect person. And so if, if he experienced any kind of change in his essence, it, would, it could only be one of two things, a change for the better or a change for the worse. If, if God experiences a change for the better, well, that means that he wasn't perfect to begin with. And if he changes for the worse, that means that God's not perfect now. It's, a, it's an impossibility for a perfect God to be changing. James chapter 1, verse 17 affirms that with God, there is no variation or shadow due to change. This is not what we see in God. Similarly, if God ever made a promise, you can take that promise to the bank because of his immutability. It, he, he cannot change in terms of what he has determined to do for you and in you and to you. Now, this is a major difference between God and us, between the creator and the creature. As Balaam said to Balak in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, God is not man 
that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind? Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Those are rhetorical questions. You guys are experts at rhetorical questions. I'm sure you detected that the answer to those is absolutely not. It's impossible. God is unchangeable, and therefore so is his will, and so are his promises. Now, the strongest evidence for the doctrine of divine immutability is the fact that people still exist. Do you, do you see that that's what he's arguing here in this passage? If it was possible for God to change his mind about the covenant that he's made with this people in particular, or really just Israel as a sample of all humanity, if it were possible for God to change his mind about that covenant, about that people, he would have done it. And they would be consumed in his righteous wrath and anger because of their rampant sin and their repeated sin. The fact that these people are still alive, let alone rescued from exile and returned to their land of promise, that is the strongest possible proof that God does not change. And the fact that you and I are alive is the strongest possible proof that God is immutable. I think it's interesting that the Lord refers to his people here as the children of Jacob. You may recall from our study in Genesis that the name Jacob means heel grabber or deceiver. And even if you don't remember those details about the names, you'll certainly remember something about the character of Jacob. He was, he was a conniving little so-and-so. He was always working the angles. He was always deceiving people, full of tricks, trying to, to make his own thing happen. The people of Israel are, are here called Jacob's children, and yeah, that's a reference to the fact that biologically, genealogically, they are all related to him. He's, he's the patriarch. But more significantly, and I think this is Malachi's point, I think this is the Lord's point, they're Jacob's children in terms of their sinful behavior. They're, they're a bunch of deceitful, conniving people too. Verse 7 goes on to say that their evil has existed from the earliest times. Listen to it. It says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. There's a wonderful Old Testament scholar named Joyce Baldwin, and she has astutely pointed out that what's being highlighted here in this verse is Israel's immutability. That is, that this people is also very constant, very steady, very unchanging, at least when it comes to their sin and their disobedience. This is a, this is a pattern. And I think we would do well to just go ahead and admit that we can most closely identify with these children of Jacob. You know, if we're looking to try to find ourselves in this passage, if we're trying to place ourselves so that we can profit from it, this is the place where we fit best. We fit best among the sinners 
among the people who have gone astray. We're right there with, with all of these rebels. And let me just draw some of this uh, together. We're asking, what is, why repentance? Why repentance? Repentance on what basis? And already, we've already been given two answers to those kinds of questions. One, you want to know why? We're great sinners. And two, the Lord is a great Savior. Even before we are explicitly called to repentance in this text, already we're confronted with the twin realities of our great need and of God's great nature. And God's great nature, you understand, is constant. It's, it's steady. It's unchanging. Even in the face of our persistent, disgusting sin and rebellion. Now, often, I don't, I don't know if this is true for you, but I'll, maybe I'm just confessing myself that this doctrine of immutability is, is sometimes cast, or I sometimes think of it as a very cold doctrine. Do you know what I mean? You know, like, so if you're not careful, you might be left with this image of God that is almost robotic, that, that, he's, that he's just cold and distant and unfeeling, and that he just basically does what he's programmed to do by his nature. But, but please understand, this is, that's a wrong image of God. And this is not a cold doctrine. This doctrine of immutability. For the believer, immutability is an incredibly comforting doctrine. Probably the best treatment, at least for my money, of this particular doctrine is by the Puritan Stephen Charnock. And uh, he deals with this in volume one of, of his great two-volume set, The Existence and Attributes of God. And uh, it's a classic kind of Puritan work, so there's a very lengthy uh, treatise on this particular doctrine, and there's lots of points and subpoints and all the rest. But at the end, Charnock uh, describes an, a number of uses for this doctrine, which is Puritan speak for what are the practical implications of these things? And Charnock says this about immutability. He says, the immutability of a good God is a strong ground of consolation. The unchangeableness of God's will shows him as ready to accept any that come to him as ever he was, so that we may with confidence make our address to him, since he cannot change his affection to goodness. What a comforting doctrine to know that there is no sin that can make the Lord say, oh, well, that's a deal breaker. There's, there's nothing that you can be, nothing that you can do that, that, that God says, oh, wait, that's a different story. No, he's as ready as ever to receive us and to hear us and to forgive us. We sing, great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, Thou forever wilt be. Point number two, 
is the beckoning to repentance. So, so that finally we have it in verse 7. We have this explicit call to repentance where the Lord says, return to me and I will return to you. Now, strictly speaking, this is an imperative. If you want to know what the language is doing there, this is a command. This is something that God speaks that must be obeyed. And understand that sinner today, and that includes all of us, repent is a command. That's not just, you know, if you decide, if you ever come to the point where you think it's necessary. It is necessary. You must repent. But, but that's not what I want you to think about. And I don't think that that's what the Lord is really stressing in this particular passage. I want you to notice the tenderness of it all. This, this is a command, yes, but it's not shouted. It's more like it's wept. One of the most popular Christian books of the last couple of years is one by Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly. I know a number of you have read that and benefited from it. I'm glad it's popular because it's a much-needed portrait of the one who petitions us to return to him. And here's one of the many, many gems from that book. Let me just give you a little quote. He, Ortland says, The Lord doesn't handle us roughly. He doesn't scowl and scold. He doesn't lash out the way many of our parents did. And all this restraint on his part is not because he has a diluted view of our sinfulness. He knows our sinfulness far more deeply than we do. Indeed, we're just aware of the tip of the iceberg of our depravity, even in our most searching moments of self-knowledge. We know this much. His restraint simply flows from his tender heart for his people. Against the backdrop of God's kindness and, and gentleness, and his gracious plea, our stubbornness about our own sin, I think, sticks out like a sore thumb. And it's shown to be even more ugly than it already is. And so we hear what we have come to expect as the typical response from this people. They're like, what? How? How shall we return? And, and the idea there is not we want to, we just don't know how. It's more like, what do you mean return? We never left you. It's you, Lord, who's distant. There's only one set of footprints in the sand. You know, on and on you can go. But this is the objection. This, the, this isn't a problem with me. If there's any distance to this relationship, Lord, it's you. And kind of included in, in those objections are some of the great barriers to repentance. The, these, thing, these type of things are going to make it very difficult for us to repent. Pride, presumption, obstinance, self-justification, deflection. And we, we're masters of these techniques. And we learn these techniques very young. If you, if you happen to have a teenager in your house you're likely 
seeing these skills regularly being honed. You know, you're the parent and and all all you want is for your, your kid to come clean about what you've already established to be the facts in your own little private investigation. You've got much more information than the kid knows that that you have or thinks that you do. And the kid is under the illusion. I, I'm speaking theoretically. I've heard testimony from some of you. I, I don't have any firsthand knowledge about any of this, but I have firsthand. I'm not just talking about Job. I'm talking about uh, myself when I'm a teenager. When you're a teenager, you're under the illusion that you can just pull one over on your parents. You know, and your parents are like, if, if that kid would just admit it, you're, you're right there ready to forgive and wrap them up in a reassuring hug. Sure, there might be some consequences, but there's, there's, no, there's going to be no barrier to our relationship. But no, what does the kid do? He doubles down. They try to, they try to make you out to be the crazy one. They might even have the audacity to blame you. And so if you're a parent, you have to slowly, patiently, you know, start revealing the facts as you know them. And maybe the reason that the Lord gives us teenagers in the first place is so that we would better understand what he has to put up with when he's dealing with us. We're obstinate. We're defiant. We're self-justifying. We, we double down, even though we know, if we were to think about it for even a second, we understand that God is all-knowing, all-wise. There's nothing that slips his gaze. We're, we're all of these things when, when all the Lord is after is our return, our repentance. He's like that father in the parable of the prodigal son who's waiting, running even, with arms wide open, but we need to first come to our senses. So the Lord calls the people's bluff and he gives them a specific area in which they've sinned and strayed and need to return. This is their, their buffalo, all right, that they need to turn around from. And that specific thing has to do with tithing. Now, there's other specific areas that the Lord could have mentioned. Indeed, there's lots of other areas that the Lord has mentioned in the book of Malachi. And he, he's mentioned them in previous grievances that he has aired. And in fact, this sin, this current sin here, this um, refusal to tithe, is very much related to some of those other sins that the Lord has already addressed, like offering lame sacrifices and neglecting the poor. All of it traces back to a lack of fear, uh, a failure to walk before him. Th these are all related, but at different points, the Lord can bring up different issues to use as an, ex as an example. And in this case, he's going to address head-on their... Their failure to tithe. Now the word tithe literally means the tenth part. It refers to the portion, namely 10%, that the Lord required from all the people uh, for various purposes. There's actually 
a number of tithes that were required at various times, and as I said, for various purposes. For example, uh, the people were to tithe their first fruits. This is a largely agrarian farmer type situation, and this would be the, the first portion of the harvest, the grain and the fruit and the crops. And that was to be brought into the temple as an offering, as an act of thanksgiving to the Lord for all of his bountiful provision. In addition, it seemed like there was the, uh, every three years there was another kind of tithe that was for the sake of the poor, uh, a sort of benevolence offering, if you will. And it was through tithes like these and these kinds of offerings that those who served in the Lord's house were provided for. You'll recall that the Levites, uh, who were a particular tribe that were set aside for service in the temple and for doing all sorts of uh, holy labors, they had received no inheritance of land from the Lord. Instead, these people were to earn their living through the gifts of God's people. That, that was how that whole thing was set up. But in Malachi's day, the offering plates in the temple were pretty empty. You know, um, the counters could go, go home very quickly after the service ended because there wasn't much to count. The storehouses in the temple that would house all of these offerings of fruit and grain and all the rest, the shelves by this point were pretty bare. Now, it's possible that you might be thinking at this point, I don't know if you'd say this out loud, but you might be thinking, what, what's the big deal? You know, so the people aren't tithing. It's not like they're murdering people. And you might even go further in your mind. You might even uh, be confirmed now in your suspicion that Christianity is all about the Benjamins. You know, it's, it's so cliche you might be thinking to yourself right now. Another, another prophet, another preacher talking about money. <laughs> Typical. Not exactly. That's not exactly what's going on here. I want you to just remind yourself of what's going on. It's the Lord God himself, through the prophet Malachi, through the preacher, who's addressing the issue of tithing to him. And to him, it's a big deal. It's only us who thinks that, you know, the giving of our tithes and offering is not that big of a deal. So, so the Lord has to shock us into reality. You know, sometimes the normal words and phrases aren't shocking enough to snap us back into reality. So the Lord has to put things in a slightly different perspective so that we can see them in a new light. In this case, he calls our failure to tithe robbery. We're robbing God. How's that even possible? Well, it's possible when you, when you take or keep that which is his, that which is owed to him, his due, you know, that, that which is he's entitled to. When you keep that or withhold that, when you keep it for yourself, it's robbery. 
think about it this way. You know, just a few minutes ago when uh, we were passing around the plates, as we do, to give you opportunity to worship the Lord through your gifts and your offerings. You know, when the plate's being passed around, most of us would never dream of reaching out and taking a $50 bill from the plate and placing it in our purse or in our wallet, right? That would be appalling to you. But is that any different from keeping a $50 bill in your purse or wallet when it belongs in the plate? Some of you might be wondering how this Old Testament passage applies to us. And maybe this is already an objection in your mind. Like this is Old Testament stuff. Is giving 10% of our incomes even required in the New Covenant? It's certainly not stipulated as a law. And when the New Testament talks about giving, it never specifies an amount. And it's true, there's lots of differences this side of the cross. We have new motivations, we have the spirit, so on and so forth. All of these things make a difference. But here's a couple of things that have not changed that I'll just throw out for you. The kingdom of God is still funded by the generous gifts of his people. You know, the Lord obviously can do amazing things. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, but he doesn't typically work in a vacuum. He, he uses means, and the means that he has ordained to use to expand his kingdom and to fund gospel ministry is through the generous gifts of his people. Here's something else that hasn't changed. The, the support of those who labor in ministry, missionary enterprises, evangelistic outreaches, the relief of the poor, all of these depend, again, on a human level, on the regular, generous contributions of God's people. So to be stingy with your resources, to, to withhold, is essentially robbing God. That's not, he's not exaggerating when he says that. Another thing that hasn't changed between Malachi's day and our own is that this matter of giving is a, is a really great barometer, I think, of the health of our relationship with the Lord. These Israelites were far from the Lord. And one of the evidences of that was their year-end giving statement from the temple. You see, the, the giving of your finances is, is an expression of what's truly in your heart. It's an act of gratitude and thanksgiving. It's, it's also an act of faith and trust. You know, during difficult economic times, like the times that the Israelites were facing after the exile, it was brutal for them. And like we are, it's already shaping up, you know, 2023 is only a few hours old, but it's also shaping up to be very tough times economically. And there'd be lots of reasons for you to justify not withholding, not giving. But in times like that, maybe especially 
giving generously to the Lord and to his kingdom is a huge demonstration of your trust in him for his provision. When you take some of his provision and when you channel it back to his work and his priorities, it's a proclamation of your priorities, that they're actually in line with God's and that you're not uh, out there trying to fund your own kingdom. Well, I've got lots more thoughts, but I, I'll have to just wrap this up in some questions. And, and let me just ask you personally, are you in a habit of giving? Are you in a reg, do you have a regular pattern of giving? And I'm talking about the first fruits, not the stuff that's left over. Because I don't know if you've noticed this, but very little gets left over at the end of the month, at the end of the pain paycheck. And here's, here's the ultimate message. Repent. Repent. Do a 180. Now, again, I want to remind you, this area of tithing is just one specific area that the Lord has kind of brought up as a case study. But this, this is the message um, to you, even if you are excelling in the area of giving. But there's other areas of your life that are in desperate need of a turning from. The message is stop, slam on the brakes, do a 180, and return to the Lord. And, and perhaps the Holy Spirit is getting very specific with you right now about what that area might be. I want to just close uh, by looking very briefly at the third point. It's how the passage closed with some blessings for repentance. And you see this in verses uh, 10 to 12. Verses 10 to 12 say, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby, here's what you're doing when you do that. Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. Now, ordinarily, this is not something that you want to do. Put the Lord, your God, to the test. But it's okay when he invites you to do that. He says, Let, um, let's, let's run a, an experiment here. You bring the full tithe into the storehouse and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you. I think he's talking about locusts and blight and all of the things that would um, destroy a crop so that it wouldn't be fruitful. Your vine in the field shall not fail to bear. Grapes aplenty. And what's the ultimate result? Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight says the Lord of hosts. As it stands, their nation was uh, a byword. It was a land of disaster, land of that made for scoffing. The Lord imagines a time when this people, his nation, will be a nation of delight and that they will be a, a blessing for all of the nations. So you can see that there is incredible blessings for obedience 
and for repenting in this particular example of a lack of tithing. Again, the Lord's so gracious. He, he doesn't just say repent because you need to and, and start doing the stuff that you're supposed to be doing. He, he's so ready to bless. And the, the language here is expansive. He's going to just pour it out until there's absolutely no more need. And it's not going to just be a it's not going to just be a, a narrow channel to the, the land of Israel. This is this is going to have implications for the nations. It's always very difficult, though, isn't it, to make the sort of application from Old Testament and from the Old Covenant in which God very clearly sets up a system of blessings for obediences and curses for disobedience. He says in this passage, you're already under the curse for your disobedience. And now he's saying, obey, and you'll experience blessing. And we have to ask, does that apply to us in exactly the same way? If we, if we were to give ourselves to generous, regular giving, for example, would, would we discover that we'll become fabulously wealthy? Well, people go wrong making those sorts of leaps. This is what the prosper, one of the things that the prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all, is based on, making these sorts of correlations. And even some well-meaning preachers, um, otherwise good uh, gospel-preaching preachers might end up saying a lot of these things and making promises that you ought to be able to name and claim based on something that the Lord promised the nation of Israel. I don't, I don't think, I'm, I'm almost positive that that doesn't apply to us in the same way. Although, although, and if you'll indulge me just for a minute, I want to uh, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and just read you a portion. If you want to know how to um, think about this topic in a New Testament, New Covenant fulfillment sort of a way, We've got a great example here in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning at verse um, 6. And I've got, my, I've got my place marked in my Bible with a nice life financial bookmark, appropriately enough. Here's uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and following. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing 
in many thanksgivings to God. And we could go on, but does that sound, doesn't that sound a little bit like Malachi? The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is promising abundant blessing to those who would give themselves in generous, cheerful, non-compulsory giving for the cause of Christ. And we may not experience these things in the physical, financial realm. Although, I, I think if we open this up for testimony, you would hear many saints that have lots of experience be able to tell you that you can never outgive God. And, the, and that people will give testimony to how the Lord has prospered them and blessed them in many ways so they can continue to be generous. But you're going to be blessed in every way, not just financially. You're going to be blessed. And here's the greatest blessing. I know I need to wrap this up. You've got me on a roll, and I'm, I'm sorry about that. But what is the greatest blessing? Let's go back to this call in verse 7. Return to me. And what's the result? What's the outcome? What's the blessing? I will return to you. The promise is if you repent, that what you have is the result of that, is the greatest blessing you could ever have, is the presence and the peace and the power and the relational intimacy of your Lord and your God and your Christ. Could there be anything better than that? You get the Lord. If, if, you're, if you're in sin today, then, then what you need to do is to stop right now and turn on your heels and run back. And you know what you get? Yes, you get freedom and delivery from that sin, but only because you get something so much better. You get the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and he's there with open arms ready to receive you and shower you with love and affection and, and blessing upon blessing. And so uh, Pastor Matt gave us a good advice, some good advice today. If you want to come up with some resolutions, how about these ones? Focus on glorifying Christ with your whole life. Focus on having repentance as a, a daily part of your Christian experience so that you can have the Lord in all of his glory in all of his fullness uh, each day. What a blessing that would be. I wish you all a very merry 2023, and I'm excited about walking uh, through these days and months this year with you uh, to the glory of God.